Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise be to God. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. Amen. So um, I'm so thankful to be here. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm so thankful this week that the, the Lord has given us such a wonderful gift. Uh, as you know, um, I normally teach every Sunday message and, and this Sunday, but this Sunday is going to be a little different. This Sunday, we're not going to have just me speaking. I'm just going to open up and then I'm going to pass the torch, and at the end, I'm going to close. I have a, a very special guest speaker of mine, a very good, faithful Christian brother. His name is Tim Ostermeyer, and he is a very, uh, a very good artist, a very good photographer. I met him at my job a long time ago, and he's a faithful Christian brother. The Lord called him into a ministry where he uh, defends the Christian faith against evolution and the evils of this world, and he's written a lot of children's books, and he uh, goes all around the country and promoting uh, his stuff because God told him to do it. So he has a message that he'd like to share with us today about how actually the name of the message is, I'll give it to you here, Scientific Evidence to Disprove Evolution and Archaeological Evidence to Support the Bible. So this man is a defender of the Christian faith and uh, loves the Lord a lot. So we're going to pass the torch over to him and let him teach us all about what, God, what God's Word has to say to us and what the world's scientific, real scientific evidence has to show us about why the Bible is accurate. So if you want to welcome Tim Ostermeyer. Bless you. Yes, sir. Well, I'm very excited to be here today. You know, 50% um, of this country and this world believe that they evolved from a monkey, that their grandmother and their uncles and aunts uh, in generations before um, had long arms and hunched over and had hair uh, all over their body and that they were monkeys. Well, uh, there was a time when many people in the world believed the world was flat too, but the world is not flat uh, and the wor world did not evolve. Um, and so I'm going to show you today scientific evidence to disprove every scientific discipline of evolution so that you can truly understand that God created the world um, and that it did not evolve. You know, if, if, Jesus, if you told your friends at one time or another, you know, I believe in evolution. I believe we evolved from a monkey. And the truth is that God created the world in six days, that it did not evolve from a monkey. Isn't that like slapping in Jesus' face and saying, Jesus, I don't believe what you did in your word and God, which you said you created it in six days. I don't believe that. I believe it took millions of years. I believe our ancestors were monkeys. Isn't that offensive to God when the truth is that God did evolve, did, did create the world and not evolve it? So I'm going to give you scientific evidence today so you can believe that, the truth of it, and not believe in the false lie of evolution. I'm going to first show you some beautiful photographs I've taken around the world so you can see God's beautiful creation. I went to Antarctica. These are the photographs I took in the, one of the photographs I took in the bottom of the earth. Isn't God creative that he can create Arctic animals like this? that can go on the bottom of the earth at minus 80 degree temperatures and survive all winter on no food for three straight months. And then when they're about to die, before they have nothing to eat for three months, they have their stomachs empty, they can spit up one more bit of food for the baby to survive for three more days until the mother comes back to feed them. God is so creative. You know, God created the bald eagle birds with wingspans of seven feet long. Um, with, with white heads and brown feathers 
and a white tail, just beautiful, beautiful creation. God created wolves. So many people, when I go to conventions to sell my books, they love my books with wolves in it because wolves are so popular with people. Look at the beauty that he created of the birch trees and the wolves and the, the beauty of them. You know, the lions with the mane and the ball of fur at the end, the only cat with a ball of fur at the end. What a beautiful, beautiful animal that God created with the lion. And yesterday, uh, God took me to a field across the street from my house. Uh, there's a thousand nesting egrets across from my house. God's blessings just poured upon the woods across the street. Here's a photograph I took of three baby egrets across the, f the field. And look at the beautifulness of the little baby, the fuzz and the top of the hairs of the baby egrets. And, you know, I like to ask people, you know, people tell me the world is six million years old or that all these things are real old. Well, what if God created these animals on the sixth day, which he did on the fifth day, right? Okay, he created all the wildlife and, the, and the nature on the fifth day. Um, and then he created man on the sixth day. And what if he told Adam, Adam, I want you to go over there and cut down the tree. Now, remember, he told Adam to do this on the sixth day. And the wildlife were created on the fifth day. Well, he shot down one of the trees in the woods here, okay? Well, what if Adam counted 14 rings on that tree? How old will that, was that tree? Most people would say it's 14 years. It's got 14 rings. But guess what? It was created yesterday. Remember, God created on the fifth day, the wildlife. He created man on the sixth day. It's only one day old. See, God doesn't have to wait 14 years for a tree to grow. He can create it instantaneously in one day and make it look 14 years old. And so when B Bill Nye gets on the TV and he says the world is, is billions of years old because there's billions of layers in, this, in Antarctica. No, it's not billions of years old. That's how God created it. He created it to have billions of years old, to make it look like it's billions of years old. It's not billions of years old. It's just 6,000 years like the God created well, let's go through all scientific disciplines and disprove evolution scientifically from every scientific discipline. We're going to go through scientific laws, through thermodynamics, through chemistry, through fossil evidence, through biology, mathematics, probability, homology, punctuated equilibrium, dating techniques, interdependence, geological columns, and dinosaurs. Okay? Um, well, it turns out, if we go to the scripture, I'm only going to have one page of scripture here because I want to have the rest of it science. So you see that it's all based on science I'm going to disprove evolution, not on Bible verses. But I will tell you one page of Bible verses so you know that God did in, indeed create the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.1, it says just that. God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made and it was good. Exodus 20.11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Mark 13.9, for in those days there will be tribulation has not been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until now. Romans 1.20, since the, since the creation of the world, his invisible name, his eternal power and deity has been clearly seen so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened because they didn't believe that God created the world. Colossians 1, 16, 17, all things were created through him and for him. It is before all things and all things, all things hold together. So God is holding all these things together. If it wasn't for God, we'd, it would just all um, be like an outer space. We'd get t torn apart. The re Hebrews 1, 3, he reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, beholding the universe by the word of his power. Revelation 4, 11, 
he, he thou didst create all things, and by, by thy will they all existed and were created. Well, in 1859, there was one man who brought evolution into the classrooms. His name was Charles Darwin. And uh, Jar Darwin introduced the idea of evolution in his book. However, unfortunately, um, many people started to fall away because of this book. But in spite of the title of the book, Origin of Species, Darwin never dealt with the origin of species in his book. All he did was explain variations of the same type, birds of different colors, birds of different shapes. He never showed how a bird turned into a giraffe or a horse into a giraffe. Now, he tried to explain that the horse turned into a giraffe, but he was wrong because horses don't turn into giraffes. They have different DNA, so it's impossible for a horse to turn into a, a giraffe because the DNA of a horse can never change into the DNA of a horse, and so they will never evolve into one into another. So that, the DNA has disproven evolution's theory of evolution. Well, here's some, um, you know, people used to say a frog plus zero years uh, equal the prince. That's a fairy tale. But uh, now evolution states frog plus 300 million years equals a prince, and they call that truth. Well, it's not truth. It's a lie, and we're going to go through that. Well, here's from my biology book. Um, it shows the embryos of different animals um, in my biology book, all these different embryos. Well, it turns out the embryos are, um, he showed them to be identical. They're not identical. They're all different. But he forged the details in the drawings to make them look all alike. And later he admitted in court that he forged the details. So the biology book was wrong. Then in vestigial organs in my biology book, it said that with these organs, we don't need, um, we don't have, these, have need for these organs, tassels, glands, appendix, coccyx bones. Yes, we do have need for these things. Uh, the tonsils supply phlagtites to the mouth and pharynx to destroy certain harmful bacteria. The glands regulate the calcium phosphate balance in the plasma. The appendix plays a part in the control of the intestinal flora and fights disease in the intestinal tract. The coccyx bone serves as an attachment to the sphincter and external muscle, which is used in eliminating waste from the large intestine. All these things have reasons. God made them for reasons. And so um, to say that evolution, we've lost the need for these things is not true. Sometimes we can eliminate some because of sicknesses and we can still survive, but if you start to eliminate all these things, you're going to have some serious problems. The opposite of a vestigial organ is a nascent organ, which is developing or com incomplete organ. And zoologist Dr. Enoch noted that nascent organs are lacking, and if evolution were true, there should be a great number of these developing nascent organs in the living world and fossil record, but there is not. Well, the peppered moth experiment turns out that there was white moths and black moths in, the, in uh, London. And there was lichen on the trees, so all the white moths were camouflaged. This is from my biology book, too. And so the black moths were obvious on the, lict on the birch trees and the lichen, but the white moths were hidden behind the white bark. So the birds would come by, which, which kind of moths would they see? They would see the black moths against the white bark, and they would eat the, white, the black moths. Well, then there was a pollution that came across London in the 40s, and it destroyed much of the lichen. And so all the trees turned black with the smog. Well, guess what? The white moths were visible, but now the black moths weren't. And so the birds came by and ate most of the white moths, and then the black moths we were able to survive more. So in the beginning, there was more white moths because they were clamophaged. And later, there was more black moths because now the white moths were obvious and the black moths were camouflaged. So we went from more white moths to more black moths. Is that evolution? No. That's survival of the fittest. That's not evolution. 
That is just survival of fittest and does, did not go from one species to another. We had moths in the beginning. We have moths now. Nothing's changed. Well, there are some people who believed in creation. These are some of the greatest minds who ever lived in the history of mankind. Francis Bacon, the founder of the scientific method. Joanne Kepler, the founder of astro physical astronomy. These are all people who believed in creation, not evolution. Blaise Pascal, the father of hydrostatics and hydrodynamics, much of analytical geometry and probability, founded differential calculus, was also known for his devotional writings. Robert Boyle is the father of experimental chemistry. Isaac Newton, considered to be the most brilliant scientist of all times, he discovered the laws of motion and invented calculus. Wrote strongly defending recent creation and the existence of God. The chairman of mathematics at Cambridge stepped down for Newton as a young man because Newton solved a very difficult problem that no one else had ever been able to solve. Michael Faraday discovered the electromagnetic induction and developed electromagnetic lines of force, discovered to be the greatest physicist of all times. Louis Pasteur established the germ theory of disease and disproved spontaneous generation of life. As a student, Pasteur solved the problem in one hour, what a professor had been working on for a lifetime. Considered to be the second most brilliant man of all time, Einstein's considered to be the third. William Thompson established thermodynamics and discovered the first and second law of thermodynamics. Thompson was a young Earth opponent, opponent of Darwin. These are the greatest minds in the history of mankind who invent, who discovered all the sciences. Every one of these people believe in creation and do not believe in evolution, and many of them spoke against evolution. Well, the first law of thermodynamics states that energy can never be created or destroyed. Um, Yet evolution contradicts the first law of thermodynamics that says if the Big Bang Theory produced an abrupt appearance of initial matter and energy of the universe. They have no explanation for the original production of matter or energy found in the universe. So they're saying something came from nothing, which is impossible. And so, but creation supports the first law of thermodynamics because there's a supernatural God who can overcome his own laws of science. If Jesus wants to walk on water and overcome the law of gravity, he does it. If he wants to overcome the first law of thermodynamics and create the world out of nothing, he can do it. But evolution, it can happen by chance. Well, the second law of thermodynamics states that all systems go to a higher state of disorder. Example, the sun is burning up, the mountains erode, people grow old, dead bodies decay, batteries get weak, old barns fall down, cars wear out, hair gets messed up, garage requires cleaning, energy is be being dissipated to space. Cosmos heat is turning cold. Matter is dissolving to radiation. Stars are burning up. Everywhere you look, the second law of thermodynamics is always true. If it's incorrect one time anywhere, it is no longer a law of thermodynamics. It would be the theory of thermodynamics. But it is true that all things go to a higher state of disorder, and therefore the law of thermodynamics is that true? what it is, a law that can never, ever be broken. Well, evolution claims to break it. It claims that there was an explosion and we get this great life and create and all this beautiful evolved creatures out of this explosion. It contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. Cannot happen. What if I told you there was an explosion of the mountains and the mountains exploded and out of that explosion, it created a city. Would you believe that? No. What if I blew up an airplane and said, and blew up a, a Boeing 747? 
Would we get anything good out of that? No, we get destruction out of explosions. Yet people today talk about the Big Bang as its truth, as if it's truth. It's a lie. It contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. Well, you know, the woodpecker, I used to design radars for airplane companies, and there would be, we'd have to limit the acceleration to nine Gs. If it's nine Gs or more, the pilot would actually die inside the, the cockpit because the organs inside the, the pilot's body cannot withstand accelerations of gravity exceeding nine Gs. Well, the woodpecker, God created an animal that can create and survive 750 Gs. There's no animal that can survive 30 Gs, but yet we have one that can survive 750. There's no evolutionary track to show how man can go from 9 Gs or any other animal to 30 Gs, yet this woodpecker can see 750 Gs. That's God's creative design in the woodpecker to peck away at the tree at 750 Gs. Well, Darwin said that to suppose that the eye had evolved is absurd to the highest degree due to its complexity. Even Darwin said that. To believe the eye, as complex as it is, it takes an image, unreverts it, puts it back into your brain in the right direction with all these retina, all these complex features, could it actually evolve is absurd, was Darwin said. Well, you see this little cleaner fish here? It likes to clean the teeth of this fish. It survives off that crud that's on the cleaner fish. Well, there is, uh, this cleaner fish needs that fish, because it has really bad teeth, it needs the crud eaten or else the teeth will, will dissolve and, and fall apart within months. So they both need each other to survive. But which one occurred first? Which one evolved first? If they didn't both evolve at the exact same time, neither one would exist. They weren't. The chance of that is craziness. They both were created at the same time. That's why they can both survive. Well, there's magazine articles, one after another, another supporting the fossil record that it doesn't support evolution. It says things like this. Um, Charles Darwin generated in the, in the generated theory, who generated the theory of evolution called the fossil evidence in the ground perhaps the most obvious and serious objection to the theory of evolution. Darwin said that. David Woodruff, uh, evolutionist author, said, but fossil species remain unchanged through much of their history, and the fossil record contains to, to, fails to contain a single example of significant transition. Newsweek entitled, Is Man a Subtle Accident? The more scientists have searched for the transitional forms that lie between species, the more they have been frustrated. Ayala and Valentine, evolutionist authors, we are forced to the conclusion that most of the really novel toxa that appear suddenly in the fossil record did indeed, fact, originate suddenly. Washington Post and Science Magazine article in regard to the historic Gish do Doolittle evolutionist creationist debate called the debate a rout in favor of the creationist, despite the fact that evolutionist was an excellent speaker and highly qualified. David Rutt, evolutionist professor of geology at the University of Chicago, we now have a quarter million fossil species, but the situation has not changed much. The record of evolution is surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. Fewer. 
By this mean, I mean some of the classical case of Darwin's change of fossil record, such as the evolution of the horse in North America, have had to be discarded or modified as a result of more detailed information. For example, the Peking man, Nebraska man, um, all those ape men, Piltdown man, um, have all, Lucy, have all shown to be all man, all ape, or total fraud. So we have less transitionary links today than back then because we've shown many to be, all of them to be false. Millions of fossils have been found without any transitional fossils. The missing links between species are still missing. It's just it's quite simple. God created horses. He created giraffes. He created lions and tigers, all differently. They didn't evolve from each other. None of them did. They all created differently and unique. Just because a spoon looks like a fork doesn't mean a spoon evolved from a fork. And just because a lion looks like a tiger does not mean one evolved from one of each other. They, actually, they look quite different in my mind. And that's the truth of it. The fossil record does not show any of these, these fossils uh, in the ground. Well, there's something called the geological column in the ground. And in this geological column, you'll see all these layers, like the Cambrian layer, <clears throat> the tertiary layer, the Jurassic layer, the Triassic layer, the Permian layer, the Devonian layer, all these layers in the ground. You know that you can only find this fossil record evidence in one place in the whole world. You know where that is? It's in the biology books because it's nowhere in the real life. That's right. It's upside down. It's inverted. Layers are missing. Nowhere on earth do we see all these layers going from one animal to another like you see here. And when they're inverted, how can you explain that the top one came from the bottom one when they're inverted? You can't. And that's what we really see in the ground. These fossil records came from catastrophes, mudslides, things like that. They did not come, and hurricanes, and from tornadoes. They did not come from uh, millions of years of evolution. Okay? Um, they're supposed to be 100 miles thick, but in real life, the average thickness is only one mile thick. It was once believed that different kinds of rocks, granite, sandstone, shale were formed in different ages. It is now known for 100 years that rocks of all kinds can be found from all geological ages. Nowhere is this, is this fossil evidence found in the real life. It's only found in the textbooks. It's inverted in many areas where old formations are deposited on top of young formations, like in the Rockies, the Alps, and the Alparation Range. Well, here's the first layer of the Earth. It's called the Cambrian layer. What do the experts call it, even the evolutionists? They call it a Cambrian explosion. An explosion. Why is it called an explosion? It's an explosion of life. There's so many complex creatures here. We've got trilobites, jellyfish, starfish, snails, trilobites. These are very complex creatures compared to this single and multi-celled animals. They did not expect to see full fish and full trilobites and full jellyfish in the very first layer of the earth, but they do. And so they call it the Cambrian explosion. They have no explanation for that, and I repeat, Darwin called the fossil evidence perhaps the most obvious and serious objection to the theory of evolution. Well, what is, the, what is the truth about the fossil record? Fossil requires very specific conditions. Dinosaurs and other fossils could not have formed in the way by evolutionary books. Animals were almost never fossilized unless they're buried quickly and deeply before scavengers, bacteria, and erosion reduced them to dust. Under catastrophic conditions, dinosaurs, fish, and diverse animals are entombed by massive muddy sediments, which are hardened into rock very quickly due to mudslides and things. 
Abrupt appearance of animals, evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide it. The abrupt appearance of plants, scientists have been able to find evolutionary history for even one group of modern plants. There's increasing evidence that many sedimentary rocks, some thought to take millions of years to accumulate, almost certainly were deposited only in months, days, hours, and even minutes. And I'll show you pictures of that coming up later. Um, what does it, how, is it hard to differentiate between fossils? I mean, when we find these fossils, is it hard here to find out which is the saber-toothed tiger or which one's the human or which one's the ape? No, there are clear distinctions between God's creation. Well, creationists support catastrophism. When there's catastrophes, they form these fossils immediately, and that's what, as believers, um, we believe, and we believe the evidence shows that these fossils happened immediately and not over millions of years. Now, there was something called spontaneous generation, the first form of evolution. They thought that there would be some dirt or dung, and out of that dirt or dung, pretty soon, um, flies would start coming out of the dung. And they're saying, that's amazing, look at that. There's all this dung, all this dirt, and all of a sudden these flies are flying right out of it. That's evolution of flies. Well, it turns out, Reddy decided to put the plastic over the dung to see if flies could form and the unside that, well, it didn't. Because when you put plastic over it, other flies couldn't fly in there and lay the eggs. And so, therefore, um, the eggs couldn't form because they weren't there to be laid. So they did not evolve from nothing. It created from God's creation of the eggs that were laid in the dung. So it was creation and not evolution, disproved by Reddy. Well, um, you know, Darwin used to think that the horses would stretch out um, their necks and become horses. So that was the second form of evolution. But again, as I repeated before, as I said before, horses cannot uh, evolve into giraffes because their DNA is different. The horse DNA is different than the than the giraffe DNA, and so there, it can never happen. So, so DNA evolution is impossible. So the next form of evolution that people started to think about was mutation evolution. They said it must have happened through mutations, through cosmic accidents into the world, and landing on people, and landing on and creatures, and changing them into different animals, or the, just the mutations of the radiation causing the changes. So they, they tried that. They tried mutations onto flies. Fruit flies. And you know what they got? Fruit flies with little wings, fruit flies with big wings, fruit flies with no wings, and fruit flies that with normal wings. But guess what? They were all still fruit flies. They did not get a horse out of it. They did not get a giraffe out of it, a cow or a pig, or even a centipede. All they got were fruit flies. Well, the evolutionists are getting kind of desperate, so they said, well, we better try something else. We better, we better explain that fossil evidence because it's kind of weak. We, don't, we have a cow, we have a horse, we don't have anything in between. We got a cat, we got a dog, but nothing in between. We got a giraffe and a horse, but nothing in between, so we got a weak fossil evidence. So let's, let's have an explanation for that. So they said, ah, now we know what we can call it. We can call it punctuated equilibrium, that the evidence happened so fast, it happened overnight, and the horse had a baby, and it turned into be a giraffe. And that's why you don't see it in the fossil record, because it happened overnight. 
No, my friends, that's not how it happened. A horse does not have a baby and turn into a giraffe. That's called silliness and stupidity. Um, so we have just gone through in this, so far through this speech and disproved evolution from a spontaneous generation standpoint because the eggs did not evolve. They were laid there by flies. Natural selection, we said, wasn't evolution, just survival of the fittest. Which moths survived, the white moths or the black moths? Breeding ev evolution, we said that was wrong. Darwin was wrong. The horses don't turn into a giraffe because of DNA. We said the mutations were wrong because you can't mutate into any other form of, of creature. We said the Big Bang was wrong because it's the first law of thermodynamics. And we said punctual equilibrium was just ridiculous for a baby horse to have a baby and turn into a giraffe. So we just had six forms of evolution. In less than a half an hour, I just scientifically disproved all six forms of evolution. Well, microorganisms to fish, I've got seven great quotes here talking about um, how it really didn't happen. The, the abundance of great variation of complex creatures so sternly ex, ex, sudden that it's called the Cambrian explosion. Missing links still missing. Nowhere on Earth that we found intermediates between single-cell organisms and complex invert, invertebrates. The absence of Cambrian explosions um, other than microorganisms is a major mystery of life, according to Gaylord Simpson. Um, thousands of fossils of non-flying insects have been found. Thousands of, thousands of fossils of flying insects have been found. Not one fossil intermediate has ever been found. Um, the idea that invertebrates, animals with backbones, evolved from invertebrates with no backbones cannot be shown from the fossil record. F.D. Omanis states when the first fossils of animals were with really fish-like characteristics appeared, there's a gap of probably 100 million years, which we'll never be able to fill. Missing links of fish, careful reading of Rome's book, Vertebrate Paleontology, seems to allow no other conclusion that all the major fish classes are clearly and distinctly set apart from one another with no transitional forms linking them. Fish created, not evolved, air white evolutionists and expert on fishes said, but whatever ideas authorities may have on the subject, the lungfishes, like every other major group of fishes I know, have their origins firmly based in nothing. Well, fish to mammal, I can go through the same thing. Branchiotaurus, the dinosaur has a snout on the top of his head. Every other dinosaur has a snout at the front of his nose. There's no transitionary forms with snout three, halfway up, three-quarter of the way up, or a quarter of the way up. They're all either um, at the snout, front of his nose, and one dinosaur has at the top no intermediate forms. In all fishes, living or fossil, the pelvic bones are small and loosely embedded in the muscle. There's no interconnection between the pelvic bones and the vertebrae column. None is needed. The pelvic bones do not and could not support the weight of the body. In amphibians, living or fossil, the pel pelvic bones are very large and firmly attached to the vertebrae column. This is a type of anatomy an, an animal must have in order to walk. A unique flying reptile called the paradon not only had a large toothless beak and a long rearward extending bony crest, but its fourth finger supported a wingspan up to 52 feet. How could these strange creatures have evolved through innumerable intermediate forms over millions of years without time, over time, without leaving a single such intermediate fossil in the fossil record? They're not hard to find. They're 50 feet long, okay? But yet we have one of these pteromagons with a 50-foot finger, and we have nothing else with a 20-foot finger or smaller. Rats flourish under almost all conditions. If any group of animals could supply transitional forms, this group could. Romer said that the origin of rodents is so obscure, no transitional forms are found. Well, the search between missing 
link in, between ape and man. We talked about the Java man, the Peking man, the Neanderthal man, Nebraska man, Piltdown man, Lucy. All these have been shown to be total, all fraud, all man, or total ape. The Java man uh, was, was invented by a Dutch physician named Eugene Dubois, discovered parts of the skull and femur 50 feet apart. Dr. Dubois announced to the world he discovered an intermediate between man and ape. Dubois failed to mention he's also found two human skulls at the same level. To reveal this would make it impossible that the Java man to be accepted as the missing link. It wasn't until 30 years later when a similar discovery was about to be announced he had these other two skulls for 30 years, 15 years before his death. Dubois finally agreed with many other scientists that Jab Man was nothing more than a giant ape. Peking Man, prior to his death, Dr. Davidson Black, professor of anatomy at Peking, declared he found evidence of a man-like creature in Peking, China. Black's conclusion was based on the sink find of a single tooth. This tooth and substitute finds occurred during the period 1941 and 45, and none of it has been ever recovered except two teeth. The hearsay evidence for Peking Man would be just ruled just that, hearsay evidence. The Neanderthal man had missing iodine in their, in their diet. They were discovered in a cave in Dusseldorf, Germany. Um, although his cranial capacity exceeded that of the modern man who is, is classified as a semi-erupt brutish subhuman. Today, evolutionists agree with creationists that the Neanderthal man were nothing but just plain people who came from the rush inland environments in Europe where they suffered skeleton abnormalities from lack of iodine in their diet and a shortage of sun-induced vitamin D. Now, those the evidence you see, or the pictures you see in the evolutionary books, where the man's hunched over, and you see more, more hairs on him, and they're getting less hunched over and less hunched over and less hair and less hair, turns out that is such a lie because there's no evidence of the hair in the fossils, and there's no evidence to where, how exactly their posture was when they died. Did they just fall over when they died, or did they fall straight when they died? And so to say what kind of posture they had, or how much hair they had, is, is just a total uh, artist deception. Well, the Nebraska man was presented in this famous Scopes trial in 1925. The Nebraska man was identified from a single tooth. By imagination, the tooth was put in a skull, the skull was put in a skeleton, the skeleton was given flesh, hair, and a family. Two years later, the tooth was put back in the skull and the skeleton. It turned out to be the tooth of an extinct pig. The Piltdown man was discovered by Sir Arthur Keith. Here is Sir Arthur Keith. This was evidence that was brought into um, the classrooms as evidence for evolution. He had an ape-like man with the ape jaw of a, a bone of an ape on his jaw and a skull bone of a man at the top. Well, there was a little problem with that because a few years later, they found out that he took the ape bone of a the jaw of an ape and he combined it with the skull of a man, used scratching salts to make it look old, and then presented it as the missing link to become famous. Well, he was taken to court, proved to be wrong, and now if you do a search on the lies of all time, this is number five lies of all time, the Piltdown Man, uh, which is incorrect, yet this is what brought proof of evolution into our classrooms, all based on a lie. Now, I have a number of people who I sell books with, my books at conventions, and they know I've written this paper, and so they're trying to get me to get back into the classrooms and sue them for teaching evolution because it's a lie. And so I'm looking for the Liberty Union to help me um, have, make this happen. So I just would really love to share this evidence to all the public schools in a court, law, court of law. 
Well, here's the eight, this is the next eight man, the last one they had, it's called Lucy. Do you see an ape man in these fossils here? I don't know what this is. I don't, I, I, there's not enough bones to say it's a human, an ape, or anything else. It's just pathetic. But yet, they, see, they like to do something like this. What do you really think this is? Well, I've had people say it's a basketball. Some people say, it, what was it originally? Some people said it was an egg. Some people said it was an oval. Some people said it was a start of a circle. Well, you know what it really was in the beginning? Just two semicircles, okay, two lines. That's all it ever was. But see, evolutionists like to say, no, there was this in there, and he had hair, and he was hunched over, and, and there was an ape man in there, and, and, and he, had an ape, he had a jaw in there, and there was skull that looked like a human, and, and they, they were combined. No, it, it just was that simple. Here's the dinosaur that had the, the long fourth finger. 50 feet long. You see, when you have a fossil that's 50 feet long, it's very easy to find it, okay? You don't have to work hard to find it. And so, uh, but we've only found one of these. And so, if you happen to be digging in your backyard sometime and you find one of these that's maybe only 25 feet long, maybe we got something going here. But right now, we only have one of them, and they're 50 feet long, and there's nothing even close to it. This is proof of creation, not evolution. God created these beautiful dinosaurs. And people said, yeah, but how could the people survive with all these dinosaurs? I don't think we had that many dinosaurs on Earth. We haven't found that many fossils of dinosaurs. It's not like they're crawling around in every corner of the Earth at the time. I really think there was just a few of them in isolated areas away from most people. And so most people at the time did not have to deal with them prior to the flood uh, when they were destroyed. And then people say, well, how could God take all the dinosaurs onto the, the ark? Well, it's possible he took just the babies onto the ark, and maybe they didn't survive for some reason. And um, so that's maybe why we, or they just, um, just didn't survive for some reason. We don't know the reason why they didn't survive. Well, we're going to go into chemistry right now. Uh, it turns out um, that protons carry a positive charge, electrons carry a negative charge, neutrons are electrically neutral. Um, positive and negative charges attract each other, and like charges repel each other. Well, the nucleus is a, po is a positively charged central portion of an atom that comprises nearly all the atomic mass and, proton and consists only of protons and neutrons and no electrons. Well, one of the early mysteries of atomic physics was the nature of the force that kept together the two protons packed together in the nucleus. These two positive charges repel each other. Nuclear physicists that causes the force that binds the protons and the neutrons into the atomic nucleus, the nuclear force. Without the existence of this mysterious force, the nucleus of an atom would explode like an atomic bomb. The nuclear force is fundamental to the existence of life. If the nuclear force was slightly weaker, all the protons in the nu nucleus would fly away from another. Only a single proton element like hydrogen would form. Heavier elements and molecules like water, H2O, would not form. If the nuclear force was slightly stronger, then all the atomic nuclei would have to contain a minimum of several protons because the single proton would attract others. This would mean that the single proton element like hydrogen still could not form, and then we still couldn't have water. So you see the point? If the, if the nuclear force was greater, we wouldn't have water. If the nuclear force was less, we wouldn't have water. But it's exactly the right amount that God's holding this nuclear force together so that we can actually drink water.
Well, I'm going to now scientifically disprove evolution from a chemistry standpoint and mathematics with this story. Turns out that there needs to be 100, the simplest living organism uh, contains 124 proteins of 49,600 amino acids and 4,800 genes of 58,000 DNA. Um, in 1995, biochemists determined how these 580,000 DNA were, were grouped into genes. 31 genes help organize and produce and use energy. 32 genes help reproduce genetic material to pass to the next generation. 17 genes help to make organisms' outer coat. And then the 120 genes, 20% of them, uh, the biologists had no idea, the biochemists. So even the smartest men on earth can't even explain all the genes that are inside of the gene. Well, it turns out to form the simplest protein, you need 100 left-handed amino acids, all left-handed. There's an equal amount of right-handed amino acids in nature and left-handed amino acids. And so if you're going to be in nature and decide you're going to grab a bunch of amino acids, you're going to be grabbing left-handed and right-handed amino acids by chance. And you're going to get 50 left-handed and 50 right-handed. Another time you might do it, you might get 54 left and 46 right. Next other time you do it, you might have 60 left and 60, 40 right. But you're never going to get 100 left and zero right. But that's what you need. Because if you get any right-handed amino acids in that protein, that protein will be destroyed. You need 100 left-handed amino acids. Any right-handed amino acid gets in there, it's destroyed, yet there's equal amounts in nature. Well, Robert Urey, the Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist on the origin of life, was asked how life could be based on 100% left-handed amino acids, yet spontaneous processes always produce 50% right-handed amino acids. Dr. Urey, a somewhat outspoken, confirmed atheist and evolutionist, answered, well, I've worried about that a great deal. It's a very important question and I don't know the answer to it. And so it's just amazing that the Nobel Peace Prize winners in chemistry can't even explain how you get all left-handed amino acids, and if there's one right-handed amino acid, it's all destroyed. So mathematicians went through and they said, can that happen? We go find 100 left-handed amino acids, and they said, it's like rolling a head 100 times in a row. Boom, boom, boom. And they said, you know what? We've de determined that it is physically and mathematically impossible to roll 100 coins in a row. The number is, has so many zeros at the end of it, 10 to the 170th power, this number of possible events, that they said it's impossible to even believe that that could happen. So um, it's just amazing, God's creation. Here we have um, plants. We have the sun, we have the wildlife, we have the atmosphere. If any one of these things is, see, everything depends on one, one another. The, the sun gives sunlight to the plants through photosynthesis. The plants give food and oxygen to the animals. The animals give carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. The atmosphere gives carbon dioxide back to the plant. So see how that is all working together in an interdependent situation? What evolved first, the plants? Well, they, couldn't, they didn't have 
the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to survive if just the plants were, or the photosynthesis from the sun if the sun wasn't there yet. What if the sun was there? Uh, what, what if the, the animals weren't there? Well, they didn't give the carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere to give back to the plants. So, and the plants give food and oxygen to the, to the horses. So if the horses were before the plants, they couldn't survive because they wouldn't get the oxygen. So you see how it's all interdependent. When God creates it all at the same time, boom, it's all there. But it couldn't have evolved at the same time. Well, people say, oh, carbon dating says the world is billions of years old. There's actually 56 different dating methods all based on assumptions. You can get a dating method that says the earth is 160 years old. I don't think that's right. And there's some that say it's 10 billion years old and, and all of them in between. They're all based on assumptions. What are the assumptions in the carbon dating methods? Carbon dating methods is based on the isotopes of carbon-12, the carbon-14, okay? That, that it's changed, that stayed the same over time so that we can get the ratio of the isotopes of this animal and compare it to now to see how it's decayed over time. Well, it turns out when they went into space and over time we have found out that the ratio of carbon isotopes 12 to 14 changes throughout space and time. And so that assumption is incorrect. So they've dated live snails to be 2,000 years old. They've um, gone, caused these ridiculous dating to things. You can't believe any of the dating methods. Every time you say, oh, we use carbon dating, don't believe it, okay? Because it's not true, or none of them are. Only God knows how things, yeah. how old things really are. Amen. So here's a bat. It's supposedly 50 million years old, according to the evolutionists. There's a little problem here. It looks just like the bat we have today. And they said that's impossible for anything to evolve over 50 years and not have any changes. So that's a problem for them. Well, here's some fossil evidence. They say it takes millions of years to form a fossil. Well, this fish just swallowed another fish and was fossilized immediately. Didn't take millions of years for him to digest that fish. It happened over within seconds. Here a fish is not, did not, he swallowed another fish and the fish hasn't even digested in his stomach. You can see the fish inside his body cavity. So he was fossilized even before he had time, his stomach could digest the fish. These are fossils the way God makes fossils immediately not over millions of years, which is the lives of evolution. Here's the tree that's gone through millions of years of so-called evolution, but a tree would have decayed by that time. Um, it would have been eaten by, maw, by, by insects. It wouldn't have stayed there through millions of years of strata. Right. Um, we talked about the 14 years. Yeah, if you cut the tree down to six day, it's not 14 years old. It's only one day old because God created the plants on the fifth day, so it's just one day old. Um, there's plenty of evidence here for a young earth. Um, I'm not going to go through all the details of it. I'll just give you the titles of it. Shrinking sun, evidence of a young earth. Interplanetary dust, evidence of a young earth. Atmospheric helium, evidence of a young earth. Earth's magnetic field, evidence of a young earth. And comets, evidence of a young earth. Um, and Darwin required an old earth for evolution to be true, and yet all these scientific things, which I won't go through all the details, um, show it to be a young earth. Well, here's from my biology book. It shows a moth and it shows a hummingbird. This is a hummingbird moth and a hummingbird bird. And they say, see, there's proof of evolution. They look very similar. Well, if I tell you that your fork looks like your spoon, does that mean they all evolved? No, the fork did not evolve from the spoon. Um, humans and watermelons each have 69% water content. Does that mean that the humans evolved from the watermelons? 
Similar looking organisms do not disprove evolution because God created organisms to look similar. However, missing links are strong evidence against evolution because according to evolution, every species evolved from another species. And the evolutionary process must have been left evidence in the fossil record. And the missing links in the fossil record between the species show that evolution did not occur. Well, here's another page from a biology book. It says, the whales have lungs were found to be more similar to cats, elephants, and mice than to fish. They said the bats turned out to be more similar to cats, elephants, and mice than to birds. And that was probably the most logical thing they said in my biology book. They were agreeing that there shows no traits similar between fishes or between um, birds, that they're all vary with different features coming from different wildlife. Letter from the uh, from Dr. Braun of the United States Space Program. Um, it talks about um, how he knows that God was created and when he was in space, he just saw how complex and detailed it was and he knew that it couldn't evolve. I'm not going to read the whole letter, but that's that. Well, thank you for listening. We disproved evolution from all the scientific areas. We disproved it from a biology standpoint, from a chemistry standpoint, from a fossil evidence standpoint, from a thermodynamic standpoint, from a mathematical standpoint, from a probability statistics standpoint, interdependence, geological column, and dinosaur standpoint. I hope you enjoyed the talk on disproving evolution. It's a lie. God did create it. You can count on it. And um, please don't tell other people that you evolved from a monkey. It's just not, it's not true, and it's offensive to God. Please tell the truth of God's uh, creation and that God did indeed create it in six days, just as he said. Remember, the Hebrew word for the word day in Genesis 1 is a 24-hour period of day. It's not 10,000 years or 100,000 years or a million years. It's a literal 24-hour day, and I think the evidence shows it. I'm going to discuss today the archaeological evidence to support the Bible. Um, every time I looked at a book, I had about 30 different sources, and I looked at all the pictures in the book that would explain how true the Bible was, I only found one, two, three, or four pictures per book that actually showed the truth of the Bible. So by combining all these pictures from 30 sources and referencing them in the back to show you that I didn't plagiarize, I just showing where they came from, and then to show you what pictures I got from those sources, you can get them all in one source, okay? So, um, Comments from archaeologists. Let's start with that. Well, William Arbright, considered one of the great archaeologists, he says, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the histicity, historicity of the Old Testament. Discovery after discovery has established the inaccuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as the source of history. Um, Merrill Unger, an Old Testament said Old Testament archaeology has discovered whole nations, resurrected important people, and in an astonishing manner filled in historical gaps, added immeasurably to the knowledge of biblical backgrounds. Well, Miller Burroughs, Yale archaeologist, said the archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of scriptural reference. Well, Sir, Sir William Ramsey, regarded as one of the great archaeologists who ever lived, said after 30 years of archaeological and topological study of Asia Minor, Ramsey stated, Luke is a historian of the first rank, the author of both Luke and Acts. He said, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians.
Luke's history is unsurpassed in the respect of his truthfulness. Well, a Time Magazine article came out and it stated this in 1995, is the Bible fact or fiction? Well, in there they gave remarkable archaeological evidence to support the Bible. They, said, they talked about a cru number of crucial discoveries suggest that the Bible's more ancient tales are based firmly on real people and real events. In 1990, Harvard researchers working on an ancient city of Ashkelon, north of Gava Strip, unearthed a small silver-plated bronze calf figurine reminiscent of a huge golden calf mentioned in the book of Exodus. In 1986, archaeologists found the earliest known text of the Bible dated to about 600 B.C. It explains that at least part of the Old Testament was written soon after some of the events it describes. In 1986, scholars it identified an ancient seal that belonged to Baruch, son of Jeremiah, a scribe who recorded the prophecies of Jeremiah in 587 B.C. In 1993, a team of archaeologists uncovered a 19th century B.C. inscription in North Israel referring to the house of David and the king of Israel. This proves that the David, the king of Israel, was more than a mere legend. Well, also... Um, it also shows, we'll talk more about that later actually, um, but other things that this article talked about were uh, Frank Yurko, an Egyptologist at Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, used hieroglyphic clues from a monolith to identify figures in a Luxor wall relief as, as ancient Israelites. Dated to 1207 BC, celebrates a military victory by the pharaoh Menerpheth. Israel is laid waste, it reads, showing that Israelites were a distinct population more than 3,000 years ago uh, and not just because the Bible tells us so. Mm. Well, prior to 1994, French scholar Andre Lamour had spent seven years studying the Moabite stone, now rest in the Louvre. Lamar had to reconstruct a missing letter to decode the wording, but if he's right, the phrase states, this is from, um, um, from Egypt, House of David, and a, a second century reference to David's dynasty. Um, yet for ordinary Jews and Christians, it's impossible to maintain scientific detachment without being dug up in the Holy Land. They are still deeply gratified that much of it appears solely, it, it, it appears much of it based on fact. 1990, diggers in Jerusalem discovered an ossuary repository for bones with inscription, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, archeological evidence that the high priest Caiaphas was a real person. In 1961, diggers in Caesarea found a fragment of a plague plaque indicating it was a building was dedicated by Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. In 1986, two Galileans found the remains of a 26-foot-long boat buried in the mud in the Sea of Galilee that has been dated to the first century. The Gospels contain 45 references to boats and fishing as they relate to Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Discovering, discoveries of astonishing variety of first century coins explain the need for money changers whom Jesus drove away from the Jerusalem's great temple. So there's many of those coins which we'll show you later. All these things were put in the magazine article. Is the Bible fact or fiction? And the conclusion was the Bible was fact. Well, here is um, the archaeological evidence. In the ground, we have something called manuscripts. Uh, it turns out that for each of the, 
For centuries, the Jewish scribes have been making handwritten copies called manuscripts of the Old Testament. For each book of the Old Testament, scribes numbered each verse, letter, and word. These scribes wanted to ensure that not one jot or tittle of God's word would be passed or away or lost. The most manuscripted work of all time turns out to be the New Testament. And how many copies, manuscripted, handwritten copies, do we have of the New Testament? Letter by letter, tittle, tittle by tittle, we have 24,000 copies of the handwritten of the, old, of the New Testament. What's the second most manuscripted book of all time? It is Homer by Iliad. And you know how many copies it has? 643 copies. Third place, Aristotle. It has 49 handwritten copies. Caesar, 10 written copies. Plato, 7 copies handwritten. 24,000 for the Bible, 7 for Plato. Oh, and the time span. The time span that the New Testament were written to when they were actually found. 25 years for the New Testament. 500 years for Iliad. A gap of 500 years from when they found them to when they were written. 1,400 years for Aristotle. 1,000 years for Caesar. And 1,200 years for Plato. Now, how many people don't debate the writings of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, or Caesar as truth? And there's thousands of years of gap between when they were written and when they were found. But yet, we have 24,000 copies of the New Testament within 25 years of when they're written. And yet people say, oh, you can't believe the Bible. It's changed over the years. Wrong. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. A little shepherd boy was up in the, up in the um, Middle East, and he shot a little rock after one of his little lambs, and it went into a cave, and it made a noise. He went up to there, into the here what that noise was, and it turns out it's one of the greatest archaeological evidences of all time. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which shows that the Old Testament, with all 300 predictions of the Messiah, has not changed over 20 centuries. Um, over, over time, a total of 11 caves were found in this area, the biggest treasures were found in caves 1, 3, 4, and 11. Cave 1, found in March 1947, contained a complete roll of the book of Isaiah. A second roll of Isaiah, chapters 41 to 66. Two copies of Isaiah, predictions of the Messiah, parts of the Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, and Psalms. Cave 3, found in, 19, found in, the, in 1952, Contained inscribed copper scrolls, contained lists of the treasures and the burial places. In Cave 4, found in 1952, September of it, when well, the other one is March of 1952. Main Library of Essene Jews, 382 manuscripts, 100 biblical manuscripts, contained fragments of 39 of the 39 books of the Old Testament, 14 manuscripts of Deuteronomy, 12 manuscripts of Isaiah, 10 manuscripts of Psalms. And Cave 11 found the roll of Psalms, a manuscript of Job, and two copies of Daniel. And what did they find? That the words that they used then are the same words we have today in our Bibles. And isn't that what you'd expect? Do you think God is so stupid that he would create a Bible 
5,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago that is different than the one we use today. There's no way. God is so smart, he would make sure that wouldn't happen. And he used scribes who made sure that every word, every tittle, every dot is the same as it was before. So it is found to be the true. New Testament scrolls were found, which is consistent with the dating of the Old Test scrolls to be dated before this first century is evidenced by coins found in there, not by carbon dating, by showing that the coins dated, which is truth, because you see, you see um, all the inscriptions of Pontius Pilate in the coins, and Nebuchadnezzar, and David, and all, so we date it with the coins, not with carbon dating. Well, here's um, pictures, archaeological evidence from Egypt. Um, the first Egyptians were primitive hunting and farming communities from the descendants of Mizraim, Genesis 10, 6. In 3100 BC, 100,000 years before Abraham, all of Egypt was gathered under one king. The Israelites spent 430 years in the land, Exodus 12:40, between the time of jo Joseph and Moses. Ramses II was the pharaoh of Egypt during the great Israelite exodus from Egypt. Here are, are pictures, archaeological evidence, of Ramses II. Um, that they are just hundreds of feet tall from the 13th century BC. Pharaoh of Egypt during the Exodus, Ramses II, had this statue of stone made of himself. It's not a prideful man or anything, he just wanted a big statue of himself. Um, anyways, so here is some evidence found 4,000 4, years ago of archaeological evidence, 2100 BC. God gave Abram and his descendants the land of Israel. Genesis 12, 1, 2. Yet today, Israel is one of the smallest countries in the world, but has the fourth most powerful army in the world. Well, here is a stone slab from Egypt, 1200 B.C., found at Thebes. Turns out that the, it says the name of Israel clearly in this Egyptian stone, showing that the Israelites had left Egypt for the Promised Land. Proof in e that the Israelites were in Egypt with this Egyptian stone. Here's the Israelites carrying the Ark of the Covenant in stone, right, shown over here. That was uh, instrumental in the destruction of Jericho, Joshua 6, 6, 13. And here's a stone carving from Egypt, 2200 B.C., showing two Israeli boys being circumcised with flint stones. There's archaeological evidence, proof of Israelis in, in Egypt. So we indeed have proof that the Israelites were in Egypt, which is what you'd expect, because the Bible predicts that they were indeed in Egypt. Well, here's some pictures of Babylon uh, in its heyday up over here. This is the New York City. This is the Paris of the old days, all right? This is the city of cities. It was an amazing place. The center of world trade, the main link of commercial trade between the east and the west. The Tigris River also to, was also used to carry Babylonian trade. The Euphrates River ran down the middle of the city. Um, specks of the Babylon, according to Herodias, are, it was 100... 96 square miles, had a circumference of 56 miles. Its moat was 30 feet tall. The heights of the wall, 30, the moat's deep, 30 feet deep. The height of the wall, 311 feet tall, 30 stories tall around the city. The width of the wall, 87 feet. The watchtowers, 250 feet, 100 feet taller than the walls. I mean, Babylon was just an indestructible city that was never going to be destroyed and was protected by all these walls that were 10 stories tall, 30 stories tall, and uh, 87 feet wide. Well, the Bible predicted it was going to be destroyed. It said Babylon's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaiah 13, 19. 
since it's never going to be inhabited again. Jeremiah 51, 26, and Isaiah 13, 20. It says tents will not be placed there by Arabs, Isaiah 13, 20. Stones will not be removed for other construction, Jeremiah 51, 26. Babylon will not be visited, the Bible predicts in Jeremiah 51, 43. And it says it's going to be covered with swamps of water in Isaiah 14. Well, Babylon has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. It has been destroyed. You see it right here. It's Babylon being destroyed as, as it's in its destroyed state. It has been destroyed. It has not been inhabited again. Babylon is off the beaten path of other tourist attractions and is not even visited by tourists. The river embankments have broken away and the swamp water have covered much of the land. Everything the Bible predicted about the greatest city in the history of mankind is true. Babylon has been destroyed. Tyr, ancient city founded in 2700 BC. Four prophets, Amos, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. That's three. Amos, Joel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. That's four. Condemned the Tyrians for delivering the Israelites to the Edomites and selling the Israelites as slaves to the Greeks. Amos 1.9, Joel 3.5-6, Jeremiah 27.1-11, Ezekiel 26.3-21. The prophet Ezekiel made future predictions of Tyre, all of which come true to this day. It says that Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the city of Tyre in Ezekiel 26, 8, which he did. Many nations will rise against Tyre, which they did, Ezekiel 26, 3. Will be made, a bare, be made like a bare rock, which has happened, Ezekiel 26, 4. It's, it's a bare rock. No one lives there. Fishermen will spread their nets. It's true. It's near the water. So the people come and spread their nets on the city. On there. That's all they do there. Much of the ruins will be built in the water. It's now parts of the city remains in the water and will never be rebuilt and hasn't been rebuilt in Ezekiel 26, 14. All these predictions of these prophets have been true. Here is a picture of Tyre today, just with the columns and the bare rock. Nobody lives in Tyre today. Well, Petra, you might have seen pictures of Petra. They've got the little, the little tunnel that gets you into Petra. And uh, all, this rock, all the buildings carved out of stone in Petra, they said this was a perfect city. You only have to, en you have to enter through one area, the thin little rock that gets you into the city. All other, it's all surrounded and protected. And all the buildings are created out of rock. They can't burn it down. Well, turns out, um, they actually had a, th a theater that had 4,000 seats in the city. Edom was an ne evil nation the Edomites from Petra. Um, it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. Well, six prophets heap condemnation upon Edom. Isaiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, and Obadiah. It's predicted to be conquered by Israel in Ezekiel 25, 14. Predicted to become desolate by Isaiah 34, 13. Predicted to be never be populated again, Jeremiah 49, 18. Predicted that wild animals will inhabit the area Isaiah 34, 13 to 15. While the Bible prophecies have, have been true, fulfilled, here's all the remains of there. The, the buildings still remain in pretty good shape, but there's no one who lives there. The Israelites conquered Edom, um, according to Josephine's iniquities. The great ancient city of Edom, of Edom Petra, with its 4,000 seats theater, temples and monuments, is silent alone, decaying with time. Numerous animals inhabit Edom and Petra, including lions, jackals, Leopards, eagles, hawks, owls, lizards, vipers, and scorpions. You must first go to the border of Edom to find the first inhabited town. Um, 
Timon or Maine, but nobody lives in Petra, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So all the Bible is predicted that it would be conquered, it did, it would become desolate, it did, never be populated again, it won't, and wild animals that inhabit, all those predictions were true. And you know how they, just, how they could destroy the city? With one only thin entrance, all you have to do is turn on the water spigot and let it run. And with one little entrance, block off the water, keep raising up the little, to stop the water level from rising through your little entrance, with one little piece of sheet metal, you can fill the whole town with water and kill everybody. <laughs> they didn't think of that when they built the town. <laughs> Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem, I should say. Jerusalem, the birth, death, and ascension of the Messiah. The city of Jerusalem was used 600 times in the Old Testament. The temple in, in Jerusalem, built on Mount Moriah at the location where Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So there's the, the rock where Abraham sacrificed his son. And they made the temple site around that in Genesis 22. Well, the original temple built by Solomon has been destroyed numerous times. Um, but some of them still remain. Some of the original ones still remain. But most of them have been destroyed. And we'll talk about how they've been rebuilt a little later on. Well, the Eastern Gate, many of Solomon's wars were destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Nehemiah appeared, appealed to the king of Persia for materials and workmen to rebuild the wall after the seven-year Babylonian reign, Nehemiah 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Messiah made his triumphal reference into Jerusalem, into the temple, through the Golden, golden Gate on the eastern side. Well, the Romans destroyed most of the Nehemiah's walls in 70 AD. So the Crusaders rebuilt the walls in 1117 AD. Many of these walls were torn down by the Arabs under the leadership of Saladin in wars with the Crusaders. So the walls were rebuilt again by a Turkish sultan, Suleiman, Arabic for Solomon, the Magnificent. In 15 AD, he rebuilt the walls again, and he closed the Eastern Gate, which is exactly what a prediction of prophecy when it says that closed Eastern Gate was a fulfillment of prophecy written 2,000 years earlier in Ezekiel 4, 3, 44, 1-3, he brought me back through the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looked upon the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in it, because the Lord, the Lord of God hath entered by it, therefore it should be shut forever. And there's the gate. The eastern gate is shut into the city. Well, Hezekiah's tunnel, it was um, proof that the Bible was not correct because they could never find Hezekiah's tunnel. Little problem, they found it. So uh, in 1830, they found 100 yards long a tunnel through solid rock. 600 yards long. They actually had people with pickaxes, one rock at a time, going from both ends, all three shifts, all night long, year after year, until they met in the middle, 600 feet yards through solid rock. Um, Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah. He courageously initiated religious reforms. In high places, images and pagan altars were destroyed. destroyed. The bronze serpent that Moses made in the wilderness had been preserved and people were worshiping it. Hezekiah had it destroyed in 2 Kings 18. When Hezekiah experienced a serious illness, prophet Isaiah informed him that he would die. In response to Hezekiah's prayer for recovery, God promised him 15 additional years of life. God also provided a sign for Hezekiah 
as evidence that the promise would be fulfilled, the remarkable sign consisted of the sun's shadow moving backward 10 degrees on the sundial of Ahaz, Isaiah 38, 1 through 8. Anticipating Assyrian aggression, Hezekiah made extensive military preparations. He strengthened fortifications of Jerusalem, produced weapons and shields for his army. In realizing the importance of water, Hezekiah constructed a tunnel that channeled the water from the springs of Gahan outside the city walls to the pool of Silim inside the walls, 600 feet long. It was cut through solid rock, 1,700 feet, 566 yards. Well, they found an inscription recently, and the inscription was written in Paleo-Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, from the 7th century, 8th century BC, not the post-Babylonian script Hebrew from later, thousands of years later. Proven this was created in the 8th century BC based on the inscription they found with ancient Hebrew. Um, so it's just an amazing thing that we find discovery after discovery. There's Hezekiah's tunnel created through solid rock, 600 yards. It's just an amazing sight. Well, the cave of Machpelah is archaeological evidence to show that the first book of the Bible, the Genesis, who included the creation of the world and the worldwide flood is literal and not figurative. The cave of Machpelah shows the following tombstones. In Genesis 25, 9 to 10, Isaac and Ishmael were buried, buried Abraham in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, east of Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. In Genesis 49, 29 to 32, then Jacob said to him, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hippite, in the cave that is field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, to the land of Canaan, which is Abraham bought from the field from the Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. There I buried Leah. The cave of Machpelah is under a fortress-like exterior constructed by Herod the Great in 37 BC. The cave is located precisely where the Bible predicted it would be in the land of Canaan, east of Mar, in the field of Ephron the Hittite. A 12th century Augustine monk named Arnold was lowered into the cave with a rope and he spent several days exploring the quarters and rooms under the ground. Among his finds were 15 jars containing the bones identified as belonging to the 12 sons of Jacob. And here is the, the first Jew in 700 years to climb into that sub-cave area where he found the bones of the 12 tribes of Israel. There is the tombstone of Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac on the right, Rebekah on the left, in the cave of Machpelah. And there is the cave of Machpelah entrance located behind Isaac's tomb. That's where the entrance to go underneath to find the 12 tribes of Israel, under the bones underneath there. So just as the Bible predicted, they would find the bones of all these places where the Bible predicted they'd be buried. Well, we talked about the manuscripted book. The manuscripted New Testament, 24,000 copies. Here's some of the handwritten copies that they found. Ancient papyrus fragments of the book of John written in the Greek language um, and um, dated to be 200 A.D., just very short time after Jesus died, less than 200 years and many of them are within 25 years. Those are just amazing that we have so many handscript manuscripts of the New Testament. Well, Bethlehem, the prophet Micah predicted Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem, and it turns out Jesus was called the bread of life in John 6. Well, Bethlehem was the burial place for Rachel, the wife of Jacob, and Bethlehem was the ancestral house of David, and Bethlehem exists 
to it today. It is not destroyed like some of the other cities because God, the Bible, did not predict destruction on the Bethlehem, so it exists today. Well, New Testament locations, we found the, there's found a Sea of Galilee exists where Jesus walked on water, where Jesus calmed the water. Uh, the, the tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, exists. The island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea, where John was banished for, uh, as a criminal for his faith, and where he wrote the book of Revelation. All these things are true uh, that the Bible talked about and found uh, in real life. Here's the Sea of Galilee and the boat that they discovered, uh, dated to be uh, from the time of Christ, just within, uh, found within about 70 AD, they dated it to. They believed it was within 50 years of Jesus dying, the boat uh, from the bottom of the Galilee. Maybe the very boat that Jesus uh, entered. We don't know that for sure. It's just a possibility because it's from the sea where Jesus spent time, where he spent much of his time there. Um, Corinth, uh, the city of Greece, written about by Paul, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, one of the wealthiest and most immoral of all ancient cities. Paul wrote the book of Romans while in Corinth. Here is a first century sculpture found in Corinth. Here are some of the towers on columns we found in, that you can find in Corinth. And it turns out here's the marker at Corinth Theater with the name of the city treasure, Erastus, which is described as the town treasure in Romans 6.23. Well, Capernaum was the most important city on the Sea of Galilee on the North Shore. Capernaum was the center of Jesus' ministry. Jesus frequently taught on the synagogue of Capernaum, Mark 1, Luke 4, John 6. Jesus performed many miracles in Capernaum. The healing of a centurion's paralyzed servant, Matthew 8. The healing of a paralytic carried by four friends, Mark 2. The healing of a nobleman's deathly ill son, John 4. And the healing of Peter's mother's mother-in-law, Matthew 8. And he cast many who were possessed with demons in Matthew 8 and healed all that were sick also in Matthew 8. Well, Jesus called Andrew, James, and John to be the disciples on the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. So these are all these things that happened there. Jesus did all these miracles there. Healing of a paralytic. Healing of Jesus' mother, Peter's mother. Healing of Nobleham's ill son. Cast out demons there. He did all these major miracles in Capernaum. But guess what? Jesus called out Capernaum for their unbelief and pronounced a curse on the city. This very city Jesus did all these miracles on predicted its ruin and cast a curse on it. And today, if you go to Capernaum, you'll see a destroyed city. The ruins of Capernaum predicted by Jesus in Luke 10, 15 because of their unbelief. And isn't that amazing? People said, oh, if I could see, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Because Jesus did miracles in this city. And the very people who saw the miracles are the people he predicted destruction upon because they didn't believe him, even that he did miracles there. Well, here's Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of Judea. He was convinced that Jesus was not guilty. Pilate was convinced that Jesus was not guilty of anything and sought to release him in Mark 15. Well, Pilate knew that it was because of his envy that the chief priest delivered Jesus to be killed in Matthew 27. Pilate did not want to agonize the Jews or risk damage to his reputation and his career, but he did not want to kill an innocent man, so he tried to wash the hands of his decision in Matthew 27. Giving the people an option to release one of the prisoners in Matthew 27, 24, Pilate issued the officer sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion in Matthew 27. Well, what do we have found archaeologically? 
we found the bronze coin of Pontius Pilate, here and here. The silver denarius of Tiberius, here and here. The silver coin of Augustus, here and here. And the inscription of Pontius Pilate, with his name, Pontius Pilate, in Caesarea. So this is archaeological evidence to prove these people lived, the very people who spent their time with Jesus. And for years they said, oh, crucifixion never occurred. They never, had, they never crucified people. That's in your dreams. It never happened. Well, the reason was that they went, whenever they crucified someone, they would take the nails out so there wouldn't be archaeological evidence to prove that there was crucifixion because the nails would be pulled out of the, the nail to get them off the cross. Well, one time when they put the nail in, it hit a knot in the wood or it hit a brick next to it or something, and it curled over the nail. So they couldn't pull it out. So when they died, there was an ankle bone with a nail bone th through it. Proof of crucifixion. No, it wasn't a hoax. They really did crucify people, and there's proof of it right there. Well, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Bible predictions in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the birth of Christ, were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we have the tomb of Jesus in Israel. This, listen to the predictions of the torture of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the time of Christ. He was despised and rejected of man, bore our griefs and our sorrows. In Isaiah, these are all from Isaiah 53. Was afflicted was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, laid the iniquity of us all, was oppressed and afflicted but not did, did not open his mouth, was a lamb led to slaughter, suffered oppression and judgment, was stricken for the transmission, transgression of God's people, made a, his grave with the wicked, was with a rich man in his death, made no violence, had no deceit in his mouth, made himself an offering for sin, bore their iniquities, poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, bore the sin of many, made the intercession for the transgressors. If you were to ask me who all those things we're talking about, it's clearly describing the life of Jesus and his death. And yet all of these were written in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ, and proven by all the manuscripts we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls as word for word, accurate things we found about the Messiah. And Jesus predicted over and over after three days he would rise again from the dead. And the Jews knew these predictions. They had the army guard guard the tomb to make sure he couldn't escape. But yet he did. And he was, see, when you're God, you can walk through walls. You can go from yeah. one spot to the other. Um, and he did. And so he got through the army. You know, that was the, that was the most powerful army in the world. The army got, they didn't want that guy to predict that he, he was predicting he was going to raise the third day. Okay. They weren't going to let that happen. Well, sorry, <laughs> they did. Because Jesus was more powerful than the most powerful army in the world. Um, so, but here's the tomb of Jesus right over there. So, um, but there's no archaeological evidence for the body of Jesus because he's not here. He's risen. Um, so if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is archaeological evidence all throughout the land of the Middle East. We date things with pottery and with coins, not carbon dating, because carbon dating method is inaccurate, but coin dating and pottery dating is not. And so we date these things to 600 B.C. that happens in the Old Testament um, and 
later for things that happened in the new. Yes, there is more archaeological evidence, um, a lot of archaeological evidence to prove the Bible's correct, and there's no doubt that the Bible is indeed correct. Um, it is a piece of historical evidence and it shows the truth um, of the Bible. And even the old magazine article, or the Time magazine article, actually showed that the Bible actually shows some of those old Bible stories to be tr based on truth and real people. Well, praise be to God. Thank him and thank uh, Tim Ostermeyer for coming and joining us today and giving us all those wonderful facts. Not fiction, but coming and giving us all those wonderful facts of the Bible and of God's Word and how, you know, the devil has crept in and lied to the world and making the world believe in evolution and against God. And it, I do believe it is a slap in the face to God, you know, to think that evolution is correct. I mean, how could we say, if God says, I made everything in six days, why, why should we say, come in there and say it took millions of years? That's an absolute lie right from the pit of hell, actually. So, you know, we've talked here, we talk here all the time at Gospel Saving Church about, you know, about, you know, the proofs, proofs of the Bible. You know, uh, not only archaeology, but we also talk about prophecy a lot, as Tim did today. You know, it leads me back to one thing that I talked about last Sunday. It leads me back to one thing, one powerful thing. All these things God has given us for what? To show us that we can trust in His Word. Well, if we can trust in the Word of God, in the accuracy of the Word of God, what does that do? It helps us to know that we can trust in the one that wrote the book. And if we can trust in the one that wrote the book, the one that wrote the Bible, then we can trust in Him for everything. Because in His Word, He says that He loves us above all creation. And He came and He died for us. And then not only did he die, he went and preached to the souls that were in captivity in hell. And on the third day, he rose again to set those captives free and also to do what? Set us free if we would just turn to him. So I urge you, please, seek the Lord. Jesus said, if you seek, you shall find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. And if you ask, you will receive. If you ask, if you've been asking, God, are you real? God, is your word real? And then you just happen to stumble across this message. Well, there's no such things as coincidences. God meant for you to stumble across this message. It was not accidental. It was purposeful. God wants you to know you can trust in his word and you can trust in him who wrote it. So if I encourage you to seek, seek God, seek his word, go through all the things we talked about today in this message. Look at all of them. Go in for your own self and seek for your own self and see if these things are true. And you'll find them to be so because we're not found liars here at Gospel Saving Church, nor are those that I bring to the pulpit to be liars. So praise be to God. He's given us all this wonderful information. You can put your trust in Him. If you haven't yet, please seek His face, read His Word, and surrender to Him right now because life is short and you could die any moment. But God has given you all these proofs and then speakers, powerful speakers with the truth coming up here and telling you the truth so you have no excuses. Seek Him right now before you, well, you still have time and come to Him and surrender to Him right now before it's too late. And then get in the Word and then do what it tells you to do. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for bringing us here today. Lord God, thank You so much for our speaker, Tim Ostermeyer, Lord, and thank You so much for Your Word as the truth, Lord. Thank You so much for 
evidences that you've given us in science, Lord God, that, that not skewed evidence, Lord God, just, just what we see, Lord, logical things that we see, Lord God, that we can see truth in those things, not lies or not, not confusing truth either, Lord. There's nothing to prove that evolution is correct, Lord God, but there's hundreds and thousands and millions of evidences, Lord God, that show your word to be true. And so, Lord, I just pray for anybody out there that's sitting on the fence. It's, it's just wondering, should I, should I come? Should I turn my life over to Jesus? Should I surrender to, to Christ? I, I just don't know. How do I know it's true? Well, Lord, I pray you get this message into their hands and that they would know after they hear what they heard today that there's no way all this stuff could just be coincidence. One or two maybe, Lord, but not the dozens and the hundreds that there are out there, the dozens that we talked about today and the hundreds that there are out there in the world. Lord God, of your word and proofs and prophecy and archaeology and history and so on and so forth, Lord. And I pray for that person that's sitting on the fence right now, Lord God, that they would know that you're true and that your word's true and that they can trust in you and that they can surrender to you knowing that you'll take good care of them and knowing that you have a plan for their lives. I love you and praise you, dear God. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.